The scripture reading this morning comes from John 17, 15 through 18, and John 18, 36 through 38. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them in the, that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all out today. Great job, Daniel. Appreciate that. And Michael's prayer, a lot of the themes y'all talked about, I think resonate with um, things I'm going to be talking about today in some way. All right. Um, let me uh, let me say that today I'm uh, beginning a two-part series that, so this Sunday, next Sunday, that would probably be guaranteed to get me into hot water. If my audience weren't composed of folks who I trust will, will extend me grace if I need it. Good chance of that. Um, these sermons, if you want to look them up later, uh, will be called something like the gospel and the government, part one and two, something like that. haven't decided for sure, but we have an election coming up. And it's an election more, more fraught with angst and division than any election I have personally ever experienced. I've read about ones in American history um, that were that way, but I've not experienced anything like this. And it's also an election in which questions of morality and ethics, religion and God, are invoked at every turn. So I, I really feel like I would be remiss as a preacher, preacher of the gospel, and for that matter, a shepherd of a church not to address such issues. I don't know how I can like, let it go by and act like that isn't relevant to what we believe, to the kinds of things that John 6 talks about, for instance. Now, let me tell you, before we get going, what my two sermons manifestly will not be intended to do. I I'm not going to denounce or champion one side or the other. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, on election day you know, there's a lot of churches that give people lists this is who you should vote for if you're faithful i'm not doing that <laughs> for reasons that you will see i think next week and it's possible that that refusal to do that alone might vex some of y'all i don't know um I, I i don't think it's just all gray and doesn't matter i assure you i have my own political convictions which i hope reflect biblical values i hope all of us try to bring our biblical values to bear on something like that. But I want to address something this morning and next week much more fundamental, much more important, I think, than any particular election or any particular political moment. We're in a moment right now. And we're serving a God who transcends all moments, who inhabits eternity. So here's what I want to address this morning. I want to uh, help us allow the Bible to set the whole mental framework, all right, to structure the whole 
framework for how we Christ followers think about our relationship with politics, with government, with our nation. Now, we don't find any elections in the Bible, right? I don't know of a single place, well, maybe a, a, a sort of a modicum of an election here or there, but nothing like a political election because the people of God didn't live in a democracy or a republic. And yet there are still timeless principles in God's word that should structure our basic attitudes toward such matters. And so what we're going to do in these two lessons is we're going to take our cues from two texts in the Gospel of John. And they're the ones that Brandon just read excerpts from. One is Christ's prayer, his, his prayer on the last evening on earth before his death the next day, a prayer for the disciples in John 17. All right, we'll take a couple of lines from that. And secondly is the conversation in John 18 between Jesus and Pontius Pilate who is a Roman procurator, a Roman political official. And our basic question that we're going to ask in these two sermons is this. How should being a citizen in the kingdom of heaven affect our engagement with the kingdoms of the world? How should, you and I are citizens in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. How does that fact affect the way we engage, interact with the kingdoms of the world? First, I want to suggest to you this means we shouldn't place our ultimate trust. If we're citizens of a kingdom of heaven, then we shouldn't be placing our ultimate trust in our nation, in its politics, in its political candidates and leaders. Jesus told this Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, in John 18.36, he said, my kingdom is not from this world. There are a lot of blessings in our nation. America has conferred blessings on many people. But it isn't the kingdom where our ultimate hope or identity should be located. Any more than the ultimate citizenship of the first century disciples was the Roman Empire of their day. Philippians 3.20 to Christians in a place that enjoyed the status of a Roman colony. That was special. He says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. Some versions say our commonwealth is in heaven. That's your nation. That's your, that's your people. That's your tribe. That's your polity, your country. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says that you Christians are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Notice this, a holy nation. Christians compose a nation. And I want you to remember that in chapter 1, verse 1, the introductory material of that first epistle by Peter, he addresses it to recipients among numerous earthly nations. He says, I'm, I'm addressing people in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And yet he calls all of them, even though they're scattered all over the globe, a single holy nation. He's not talking about America or Rome or Russia or whatever. He's talking about the church. Christians are this holy nation. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. All right? And this is why Peter goes on to call them sojourners and exiles. Two verses later. Christians are 
in our relation to this world, sojourners. This isn't our permanent home. Don't get too close to it. Don't put too much trust in it. Don't bank on it too much. You're in exile. You're a sojourner. Indeed, let me suggest this to you. The true faithful of God have always recognized that their country, their patriotism, their nationalism, if you will, was located elsewhere. Isn't Hebrews 11 a kind of hall of fame of the faithful? What it, a picture of what it looks like to be faithful. And here's what Hebrews 11:9 says. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then he goes ahead to say, the Hebrews writer does in chapter 11, that, the, that one of the key traits of the faithful is this. They, quote, acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. So my first point is we need to be wary, brothers and sisters, lest we make or are making an idol of our country, an idol of our favorite political party, an idol of our favorite political candidate or leader. Now, how do you know if you're making it an idol? I've mentioned this before because I think it's rooted in Scripture. How do you gauge it? One of the ways is to look at your reaction emotionally, what's viscerally inside you. And this often comes out. Some of us are more sophisticated at hiding it than others. But it's in there when you don't get the thing that you so think you need. If that thing isn't God, your, your sort of idolatry gauge may be kind of flipping toward hot. Do you become irritable with the prospect that it may not go the way politically you want it to? Do you become anxious? Look at social media. Are people enraged? Uh, yeah. And Christians aren't looking a whole lot different than most other folks often. Churches are splitting over this, over masks. And I kind of wonder, some of them, if Romans 14 put masks in there, along with eating meat and drinking wine and all that, I kind of some, think some folks would just ignore it. That can't mean those kind of masks. They'd have some trick hermeneutically. Kathy Keller, I know I've quoted this before, but it's such a good quote. She says, rip up, pull up your strong emotions by the roots, and you find your idols clinging to them. Folks, do we honestly expect this world's problems to be solved by something from within this world? In John 17, 6, when Jesus is praying that prayer for the disciples on the night before his death, he prays to God that his disciples would remember, quote, that they are not of this world. You and I are not of this world. So we've got to be careful not to trust in this world and its solutions, not become idolaters toward our nation or its politics. But if idolatry toward matters of nation and government politics is the first possible error, escapism is a second possible error. Maybe you're not an idolater. Maybe you're a person who's happy to abdicate. Check out. And so my second point is, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we do have 
a responsibility to the civilization that God has placed us in. We have a God-given responsibility to that civilization. And I want to say, I have a lot of sympathy toward you if you're tempted to just check out politically. I, I absolutely get that. That's, I'm about this close. <laughs> I don't think that's right, though, biblically. But there are lots of good people who don't love the available options. All the divisiveness and ill will just makes it all seem so futile. So you're driving down the road and you see a bunch of signs that say Trump 2020. And then elsewhere you see Biden 2020. Have you seen the one that says giant meteor 2020? Just take us. Why not? Giant meteor. That's my man. But that's escapism. An escape from the world is not the right choice for a follower of the one who incarnated to come into the world with all its mess. While we are not of the world, Jesus also says in that same high priestly prayer, John 17, 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. And some try to justify this escapism by quoting John 18, 36, when Jesus, talking to Pilate, says, My kingdom is not from this world, because some versions render this of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. That's how the NIV and ESV do, for instance. The, world, the word for of or from is the Greek preposition ek. It would be ek if you transliterate, transliterate it to our letters. That basically means origin. The origin, the source, from it's a preposition that has to do with origin or source. But Jesus is almost certainly not intending to say that, that his kingdom has nothing to do with this world. Other versions put it this way. My kingdom does not belong to this world. Six or eight say that. The message says, my kingdom doesn't consist of what you're seeing around you. And then the New Revised Standard, the New English Translation, and several others render it, my kingdom is not from this world, which is the basic idea of that preposition. N.T. Wright, in his commentary on John, says this about this word and how it's often taken out of context to mean this sort of escapist idea when that fits nothing in the context. Not only in John 18, but the book of John. John 18:36, N.T. Wright says, um, he says, please note that Jesus does not say, as some translations have put it, my kingdom is not of this world. That would imply that his kingdom was altogether otherworldly, a spiritual or heavenly reality that had nothing to do with the present world at all. That is not the point. Jesus, after all, taught his disciples to pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? If you're escaping earth and it has nothing to do with earth, then why pray that his kingdom would come to earth? And I think Jake's talk a few weeks ago inside the building was excellent on that. No, Wright continues, the point is that Jesus' kingdom does not come from this world. Of course it doesn't, he writes. The world in the Gospel of John is the source of evil and rebellion against God. Jesus is denying that his kingdom has a this-worldly origin or quality. He is not denying that it has a this-world destination. My kingdom is not from this world. And by the way, that holy nation that we are as Christians, according to 1 Peter, 
That holy nation that Peter talked about, he also says that we are a royal priesthood. What is the calling of a priest in the Bible? What is a priest? A priest is a mediator between heaven and earth, between a holy God and an unholy people. He's a link. I've seen the word described as a bridge between broken humanity, a broken world, and its redeemer king. And, and he says that we're not only a nation, we are a priesthood. We're working to bridge the gap between heaven and earth. We're, if a bridge is detached from one bank, it's not a bridge anymore. It's just a cool piece of scrap, a sculpture. Right? Weird. They took it out there and didn't even connect it. And that's how a lot of Christians are living, this sort of escapist mentality that we can be aloof and not minister because we're fed up with it all. That's not the answer. Of course this world is sick with injustice and sin, but our job is to help heal it. That was always the job of God's people. And calling Christians a priesthood harks back to Exodus 19, where at Mount Sinai, God said the exact same thing to Israel, his first people. He says, I freed you from Egypt so you could come be to me, quote, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's the illusion in 1 Peter 2. By the way, it's picked up again in Revelation 1-7, where, where Christians are called a kingdom of priests. That's, your, that's who you are as a follower of Jesus. You're working with him to, to, to incarnate the principles of the gospel. It's not just theory. It's not just for Sunday and church buildings. It's to be lived out and infiltrated into the people around us who so need it. It's salt going into putrefying meat. It's light going into a dark world. Even when God sent his people into Babylonian exile, a pagan society with pagan government to the core. They had different origin stories and all kinds of stuff. Here's what he said. Seek the welfare of the place that I have sent you. It's difficult sometimes to know which exactly is the faithful path, isn't it? In particulars in the specifics but we have to discern that faithful path avoiding both the error of idolatry and also the error of abdication neither putting our hopes in earthly government nor putting our heads in the sand what does that path look like concretely somebody's tell me what it means I want to know the particulars give me the policy the political system who am I supposed to vote for sorry but taken as a whole, the Bible doesn't return a pat answer to that. It just doesn't. And usually the people who are most vehement about insisting it does are the ones most likely to take a whole culture into a glaring heresy. It doesn't feel like it at the time. It feels like it later, 100 years later, when it hasn't aged well. And people go, wow, they were culture bound. They misinterpreted. That has happened so many times in the last 2,000 years, and it's always in the name of God. The Bible doesn't give you a nice, neat, concrete list of things or people or ideas or isms to vote or reject. Its truths are bigger than that. They are soaring principles intended for all times and places, and they must be harvested from all of its pages, not your pet verse or my pet verse or our faith tradition's pet handful of verses. The whole Bible. Yes, the New Testament teaches that Christians should respect the government and its laws. 1 Peter 2 says that. 
in verse 13 and following. But does that mean passive resignation to whatever it does? Does that mean we shouldn't bother getting politically involved? Does that mean that there's never a legitimate time for any kind of protest? Especially in a political system that decided to build in the right of dissent. That, that's what this is that we're in called the USA. It's not Rome. It is in some ways, it's a, it's a human construction, but it's not illegal to say, I don't agree with that. And I think most of us know that. We're pretty inconsistent, most people are with how we are, are willing for people to apply that. But let me ask you this, as a, as a concrete, for instance, are pro-life protesters wrong to pick in abortion clinics because of 1 Peter 2? I don't think most people here would say, they'd say no. Maybe you're not gonna join the picketing, but you're probably gonna write a letter or vote your conscience on that. Was anti-slavery activism wrong when slavery was the law of the land in the United States of America? for centuries and then a Christian anti-slavery starts up in New England and it begins to spread well a Christian anti-slavery been going on along for a long time in African-American slave quarters was it wrong for them to be activists against selling people's babies out of their arms Deuteronomy says that's specifically called man stealing was the civil disobedience I don't know what else to call it of the Hebrew midwives wrong when they defied Egyptian law requiring them to kill all the baby boys born to them was that wrong because of first Peter 2 or Romans 12 the text that tell us to be you know to honor the government and be respectful and so on I'll remind you that the same Apostle Peter who wrote first Peter 2 stood before constituted authorities and said quote we must obey God rather than man same guy. So there you go. The Bible isn't just, you know, there, what's it? Give me the binary answer. We got to practice discernment. We've got to prayerfully and with a sensitivity to the Spirit of God study His Word and study it from cover to cover. Discerning the right path can be difficult, it takes careful study. Point three, very briefly, I hope. We will get nowhere unless we let the word of Christ, not the word of our culture, be our ultimate truth. We will get absolutely nowhere unless the word of Christ is our ultimate guide, our ultimate truth, not the word coming from our culture. We are living through a truth crisis right now, in my opinion. A crisis of epistemology. We don't even know how we know or how you can know anything. I mean, collectively speaking. We live in a time when truth itself, I'm not talking about any particular truth or doctrine, but the very concept of truth itself is threatened. And I'm not just talking about the lies that politicians character, characteristically tell. We, we expect that, right? But much of what comes to us as mainstream news CNN, Fox, MSNBC, ABC, NBC, CBS. It may be reported as facts, and it may very well be facts. But it's a set of facts, very often, that are carefully curated. Selecting some facts, ignoring other facts, to fit a certain political narrative, a certain slant 
whether it be right or left, yes, whether it be right or left, yes, whether it be, because a lot of us are going, amen, oh, wait, hold up. No, both sides doing that. And then there are outfits claiming to be news that are straight-up propaganda conspiracy theory outlets, actually making up things. And all kinds of independent agencies not in this country vet that and say, nope, nope, nope. And they are, they are proliferating right now. And then there are the smartphone algorithms that decide for you what content you'll be exposed to, ensuring that you'll be kept snugly inside your silo, your little echo chamber, making sure that you and I don't have to deal with counterfacts. We don't even hear other facts half the time because your phone is like already curated them for you. So what am I saying? We don't know, collectively speaking, we don't even know what's true. There's a truth crisis. Truth is being twisted by our culture wars. I'll tell you what is true. What is true is the word of Jesus Christ. In John 17, 37, Pilate says to Jesus, so you're a king then. And Jesus essentially says, yes, I am. He said, you, you've said it, basically. And then he says this in John 8, 37, for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. The truth. Everyone who is of the truth he said, listens to my voice. And Pilate says to him, foreshadowing so much cynicism toward the, even the capability of us finding truth. What is truth? Jesus already told him what truth is. It's whatever comes out of his mouth as the incarnate son of God. He who is of the truth listens to my voice. So what's your truth? What's your guide? Is it the word of Jesus Christ or is it the word of a, of a jilted and deranged culture in many ways? Folks, we have to be careful to read our times through the lens of the Bible. Not read our Bibles through the lens of our times. Huh? A partial reading of Scripture is an untrue reading of Scripture. Psalm 119, verse 160 says that the sum of your word is truth. Incomplete truth is not truth. In fact, if we just, you know, dally through the Bible finding proof text for what we're already sure of, that can actually inoculate us from biblical truth. It's just enough Scripture to immunize us against the full range of even the hard things like Daniel was talking about. We're now inoculated. Now we're not doing the whole thing. Our, our, our view of what it says is warped, and yet we have this patina, this sort of veneer of biblicism because we quoted the Bible. We've got a few verses. Never mind the fact that they're cherry-picked from a zillion other verses that might say opposite things or at least nuance our positions. It just allows us to check the box, right? Bible. Check the box without really checking out Scripture. At least not the full range, the sum of God's Word, which alone is truth. 
And that kind of cherry picking of the Bible, it, it, you know what a statistician would call that? That is straight up confirmation bias is all that is. You already know what you think. You got that from your culture, or I got it from the culture. I'm not talking to you, we. We get it from our culture, and then we run back to the Bible with our conclusions to verify that we're right. That's confirmation bias. Completely illegitimate way to think. We can see it when somebody on the other side, whatever that is, whatever conversation we're talking about, when they do it, it's glaring. When we do it, we're often blind to because we're already convinced. We've got to let the Bible argue with us. We're not going to be transformed by something if we think we've got it wrapped up neatly and put in our back pocket, that we can just deploy as we see fit. It is a dangerous thing to get your conclusions from your culture or your politics and then go to the Bible to find those verses that appear to confirm them. Let me give you one illustration of that and then we'll close until next week. This is a tragedy, really. There was a mass movement within 1930s German Christianity. It was called Deutsche Christen, which means the German Christians. Now that might sound a little bit odd to anybody who knows a little bit about theological history because you're probably thinking, well, Germany was already really Christian. Like Martin Luther came from there. He's one of the founders, arguably the founder, of the Protestant Reformation. And one of the mottos of that was what? The Bible only. Sola Scriptura. Scriptura Sola. So this movement, which claimed to be, this is what real German Christianity is. It arose in the 1930s and 40s. And it had to be Christian. Any movement in Germany in that day and time had to tap into German history and identity, which was very much based on Christianity and Martin Luther and, and Protestantism and the whole bit, though there were lots of Catholic uh, Germans as well. But basically what the so-called German Christian or Deutsche Christen movement did was to blend German nationalism with Christianity, German patriotism with Christianity. It got to where you really couldn't tell the difference very much. And they supported, and by, what, by the way, they were the majority in the German uh, church in the 1930s. The majority. It's how most people went along. They supported right-wing conspiracy theories about how Jews, their public enemy number one, were sabotaging the German way of life. They were sabotaging German traditions. And so if you haven't heard of this, yes, you're hearing me right. Christians, Christians actually supported the Nazi party en masse, most of the time. You know what their symbol was that they would put up in their churches and on their leaflets and that kind of thing? It was a Christian cross, a traditional cross, with a small little swastika on the bottom, and then the, the initials DC for Deutsche Christen, which means German Christians. And you might think, how did they pull this off? Well, actually, it was an easy sell, historians tell us. Easy sell. Because most Germans already believed in anti-Semitism. Much of Europe did. This was already widespread in German culture, so widespread that it just felt obvious. It was sort of common sense to them that Jewish radicals were the ones threatening German culture and the German way of life. And so it was easy to scapegoat and demonize them. And so now, rather than criticizing this racialized ideology on the basis of Scripture, these folks changed Scripture's meaning to fit the cultural and political bias that they already had. And they ultimately went so far as to attempt to remove all Jewish elements from the Bible. Good luck. It didn't last a long time. Not least because a whole lot of 
soldiers from here and elsewhere did Nazism in by 1945. That's my lesson for today. That's gospel. There's no real, you know, graceful closing. Dot, dot, dot. That's my closing. Ellipsis. Come back next week because part two, we're going to get a little bit more particular as we talk about the gospel of Christ and the kingdoms of men or gospel and government. Thanks a lot for your, your kind attention. I do appreciate it.